This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Pat Piper, it truly is a small world. He and I connected a few months ago as part of my regular work with Bankrate to talk, I think, about the job market. And uh, it was one of those where I got off the Zoom call and I was like, is that the same Pat Piper? And of course, it is and was. And uh, and then I you know, started my mind started reeling about Larry King. And uh, obviously, Larry passed away recently. I watched the hour long uh, remembrance that uh, Anderson Cooper fronted on on CNN. And, and that brought a lot of fascinating things to light. But I also think that it's appropriate to think about the fact that really Larry King was first and foremost a radio person. You know, and uh, in a sense, that show was a radio show on television because the video components, other than seeing their faces in a studio, were irrelevant. So, Pat, I think you began your uh, bio in a a way that many of us can identify with, and that is basically the analog uh, practice of of, uh, dialing across the AM band back in the day as a young person. and, And then you ended up being able to produce that content. First of all, Mark, I appreciate uh, the fact that you could explain economic things to our listeners. How did this happen, Mark? And you did it beautifully. So, And Larry King would have asked the same question. He has no idea what he's talking about. The guest will explain, and then it goes from there. As a young kid, I was a Chicago Blackhawks fan, and I would lie in bed at night, and I would hear you know, the local station carry the Blackhawks game. And I would do this. There was this thing called skip. I know there's a a more technical name for it, but I could get the Boston station, WBZ, the spirit of 103. And they had the same game on. And I was switched back and forth. And you could hear one announcer describe it this way. And then another announcer with, of course, a Boston accent, explain it the other way. And radio just caught me at that moment. And I said, we see the same thing, but we hear different things. And it just began from there. So Pat, how did it come that you ended up at uh, what maybe some people on this call may or may not have any intimate familiarity with, and that is the mutual broadcasting system? I worked at a radio station in Delaware that was a mutual affiliate. And you know, we would file material for him because there was a senator there named Joe Biden at the time. I would listen to Larry King, but I would I would also listen to him in Chicago uh, when I was living there and working there. And it was just the guy had short questions and that was unheard of to me. I always thought the intelligent talk show person or the intelligent conversation meant you went on for 30 minutes to ask the question. Well, Larry taught me a lot different on that. And having worked in radio, I sort of learned that prior to it. But I was asked, um, Tammy Haddad, who went on to Larry King Live, had decided she was going to get into TV. And Ron Nesson, at the time, the vice president of news, called me into his office on a Friday and said, you want to do the Larry King show? Let me know over the weekend. 
I said, okay, thanks. And I forgot about it. I completely forgot about it. And then I'm in on Monday and Nelson says, get into my office right now. I need an answer. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this about? And he said, are you going to do the King show? And I thought, sure. Yeah, I'll do it. But you guys are doing a lot of Hollywood stuff. If after six months, I want to get out of the Hollywood stuff and get back to news, you bet. And he said, okay, you got it. And Larry said, I had to meet him at Duke Siebert's that afternoon after <laughs> my shift. And yeah, I know the laughter. And he says, you know, I think we're doing too much Hollywood stuff. And I said, Larry, I'm with you on that. And so it began from there. And I was with him for 10 years. He used to say, you've been with me longer than any wife. And um, I, I would say, well, we'll leave it at that. One of the things I wanted to do was take the show on the road. He was live. He'd never screened a phone call because he just said, let's see what the world is. So we would go on the road and we would bring a live audience in. And as Mark said, that's asking for something to go wrong. And it did a lot of times, you know, in New York at 2 a.m., every drunk in the on Broadway would come into the New York Hilton and Larry handled all that stuff really well. I remember we were in Seattle, and I think we had an ISDN line as the primary line. Maybe it was satellite at that point, but there was always the backup, the phone line. Well, the satellite or the ISDN got screwed up right at the beginning, just for one minute, 37 seconds. And Larry goes on, and, and we do it. And I get a call from engineering saying, we need to recut the top because it's going to be played back on the West coast. Can you get Larry to do that? And I said, sure. Um, and he said, here's the in queue, here's the out queue. And all I need is a minute 36 to do it. So I go up to Larry during a commercial break and say, I can get the audience to calm down a little bit and be quiet. In fact, we could even announce that. And then can you just do it with this in queue, that out queue? Not a problem. Sure. No problem. And he goes, how much time we got right now? And I said, well, we we're in a, a five newscast, so we could do it right now. He goes, what the hell? Let's do it. So I asked the audience to be a little bit quiet, and I say, okay, go. And Larry says, welcome to the Larry King Show, live from Seattle. We had a technical issue, so I'm going to redo this again. And um, and then he goes on to stuff, and he timed it out perfectly at 136. Perfectly. And the engineer, you know, back in master control calls me. He goes, I knew he was going to do it that way, but that's okay. We'll just do it the original way and forget about the, you know, we're doing it because there was a screw up. He was in a different world sometimes. So yeah, live was fun. And um, doing the phone calls was fun because again, there was no screening at all. It was different from a lot of the other talk shows that wanted to screen calls and all that stuff. I just want to give people a brief anecdote about something that I experienced, and that was around 1984. I'm not exactly sure what the year was. My friend from college, who continues to have a professional affiliation with Westwood, Kevin Harlan, he does Monday Night Football. Yeah. Uh, we oh, both went crazy. to see Larry do the show uh, in Crystal City and, and basically stayed through the overnight there. And uh, it was fascinating to me, number one, because even though we had a guest in the studio, he would come to the control room to talk to us, which, and we're, we're nobodies, right? I mean, we're, Kevin was doing the Kansas City Kings of the NBA and I was working in Buffalo. 
but he was so down to earth and engaged us. And I remember he did a thing where he said, you know, uh, you know, welcome to visiting firemen, you know, from Buffalo and uh, Kansas City, blah, blah, blah. But he always seemed so effortless. And this gets to the doing the background piece that, you know, his thing was, if I don't, if I do too much research, it's going to be a problem. You are producing. So how did you manage that? I'm going to call the word tension about wanting him to understand who it was he was interviewing, whereas he's saying, I'm going to ask the first question that I think the listener wants to ask. Yeah, it was a baptism by fire because after Ron Nesson told me you're going to do the show and I agreed to that, the first author was, I think, Frederick Forsyth, who had a 400-page book out. So I said, Larry, here's the book. You may want to read it. And I get notes and I actually put a little tabs where you can ask this. And he goes, you keep the book. And I'm going to ask the questions because I don't need to read it. And I stopped and I thought, what did I just get myself into? And he was just very natural. He goes, the audience hasn't read the book. Why should I read the book? In fact, why don't you just go read the book and uh, you can listen to it on the, listen to, to the interview at home, which I thought, okay. But it worked for him. And just one other quick story, if I could tell it. We were in uh, Los Angeles and it's a live show, and of course, the first hour guest cancels two hours before he's on. And I'm sure no one has ever had to deal with that. But as a producer, you always have to have plan B and C and D. And I knew that Tom Petty was going to be going on tour. And um, I'd been in touch with their manager just saying, hey, you know, well, I called Petty's manager. And I said, if you can do it, man, you're going to be my hero. And he says, not a problem. I'll get him there. So Petty comes into the studio. He sits down and I go into the green room where Larry is in Los Angeles. And he's watching the Baltimore Orioles lose, which is what he did. He was watching baseball, football, whatever, not paying any attention to the fact he's going to be on the air with 300 affiliates in two minutes. And he goes, what are we going to do tonight? And I said, well, here it's, here's the plan. And he looks at it and he goes, who the hell is Tom Petty? And he said, he's in a rock and roll band. They're going on tour. He plays guitar. All I need to know, thanks. And that was the most fantastic interview I later learned from Petty, who came up to me and said, can I have a cassette? Because I was answering questions I never even thought about. This was back in the days of cassettes. But that's just one other story about the way he operated. And just very quickly, the mutual broadcasting system in Crystal City was on the 12th floor. And we had meetings on Mondays with Larry. And that meant Larry got in an elevator at garage level and went all the way up to the 12th floor in the elevator. And I would start getting calls after that meeting saying, hey, I saw Larry in the, in the elevator on the 11th floor. And he said, I ought to call you because you, you're the one who can get me on the air and talk about the fact that I have a twin brother. Or it could be, I know how to make a grand manier souffle. And Larry said, I should call you. This went on and on and on, and <laughs> it never stopped. And the bad part was he had to take the 12th floor and go back down to the garage level. So I was getting even more phone calls. But that's the way he was. He was naturally curious. I also want to ask you, uh, Pat, because you mentioned that basically you ended up helping him to write several books. That's a lot more uh, complicated a process than doing the live radio show, at least in terms of the management of the content. I mean, what was that like? I'll tell you, the first book, 
was called Future Talk, and it was it came out in 1999. And it was supposed to be about uh, and it was it was looking at the new millennium, and so we talked to a number of people about what are we in for, and I remember Tim Russert said, uh, "Be literate before you become computer literate," and I just thought, "Wow, that guy nailed it." And Al Newharth, who had USA Today, he started it, and Larry, of course, wrote us column for him that we've all smiled about. He said, you're going to be getting instantaneous information, but give it a little time before you react to it, because there's probably a larger story to pay attention to. And he goes, that's my advice, and I know no one is going to follow it. A lot of the interviews I ended up doing, I mean, I would talk to Larry and I'd say, okay, um, you know, we're going to be talking to Tommy Lasorda about the use of prayer, because I'd, another book I did was about prayer. And I said, okay. And he goes, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., and Tommy's in there because the Dodgers are playing in town. And why don't we meet for breakfast? So I said, sure. So I go over there, and I have my notepad and everything, and I'm writing stuff down, and they're doing shtick about Brooklyn. They're not even talking about prayer. And then Larry says, I've got to leave because I got to go get my hair done. <laughs> he gets up and he, he uh, shakes Tommy's hand and Tommy's mouth is just wide open. And he said, did he just leave because he needs his hair done? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. He goes, I'm not going to tell anybody this. <laughs> it cannot be good. And so I did a lot of the interviews. And not all of them were because Larry had to leave for hair treatment or whatever it was. I think it was just basically he was going to ta do an early taping. But that's what I'm hoping. I never found out the answer because I never asked the question. Well, when he's doing television, I think he got his hair cut every day, as I recall. At least that, yeah. that, was, that was included in a feature I saw. Yeah. And I, I witnessed, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I got to leave to get my hair done or makeup. Or I, and people were just dumbfounded. But the point is, he was fun to work with in terms of writing, because he would say, I read this transcript of, of your interview with, you know, whoever it was, Bill Gates, and Larry wasn't on the call with Bill Gates. Somebody else did that. So he goes, ask him this or ask him that. I said, sure, I can do that. Very quick story. When Future Talk was launched, he had a hit on the Today Show with Matt Lauer. And five minutes to air, he calls me. And he goes, I'm in the green room. What should I say? And I went, yeah. I went, Larry, did you read the book? He goes, yeah, yeah, I kind of skipped. But what's like a main thing I could just say? And I thought, yeah, I used a couple of four-letter words with Larry. <laughs> but I said, okay, the last millennium, Leif Erikson was sailing across the ocean. Good. All I need. Thanks. And I thought, I either want to watch this or I don't. I watched it. And Matt Lauer says, Larry, why did you write this book? And he goes, well, Matt, the last millennium, Leif Erikson was sailing across the ocean. And I thought, holy. And uh, it actually turned out to be kind of fun because he did know a couple nuggets about the people that were in the book. But that was, again, <laughs> he doesn't prepare. Well, he doesn't even read it either. So that's a story that I've always remembered and terrified me then, still does. 
Oh, that's awesome. And just to wrap up this segment, obviously the outcome was fantastic. And I might want you to think about trying to characterize why it was fantastic. But what was it like for you to work with him? I mean, obviously you stuck with it for 10 years. Why was the outcome as good as it was? And and what was it like to work with him? Again, you know, he had this idea, which you meant you referred to earlier, that I don't learn when I'm talking. And that stayed with me. That really did. I mean, this was heavy to me. And I love the idea that we just don't know where every show is going to go. We are talking to people. Larry has not prepared. And it became just a conversation. And it was fun to watch him in action on air and off air. Um, I was with him in, in 1987 at, at George Washington Hospital when he had the heart attack. And he, he said, you know, the, the doctors, Dr. Uh, Levy and Dr. Richard Katz, um, did a, a, um, a cardiogram of him, electrocardiogram. And I watched him walk over to this big screen, and they're pointing around and stuff. And then they both look at Larry. And he starts, they start coming toward him. And Larry grabs my hand and says, this ain't going to be good. And they said, Mr. King, you're having a heart attack. And he goes, am I going to die? And they said, well, you're in the emergency room in a hospital, so I think chances are good you might make it through this one. Larry King Cardiac Foundation came out of that because he realized his health insurance paid for everything. And he felt guilty, as he would say, it's Jewish guilt, it's wonderful. And look what I can do. So the Cardiac Foundation began the next year. And people who had no health insurance and were going to die were provided funds to get that necessary surgery. And they're still going. And I still get phone calls from people saying, thank you. That's why I liked working with them. Love that. That's great. How about a round of applause, even if it's just visual for Pat Piper, everybody? Thank you. Thank you. Pat, we really appreciate uh, what you had to say today. We appreciate the body of work that you've been engaged with over these many years, and we look forward to uh, celebrating all that when we see you at the National Press Club after we've gotten at least one or two jabs in the arm down the road. You bet. Thank you, Pat. Stay safe. God bless you all, and thanks for being here today. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.